From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. We talk faith, family, and fellowship here on Tuesdays on EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is in a house. He's not in his house, but he's in a house. And he's ready to take your questions. The number's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271-2985. And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our uh, our host, as he is every Tuesday, is the suddenly very artistic Father Wade Menezes. <laughs> yeah, musically inclined, shall we say, right? I'm in the music room at St. Simon Elementary School, pre-K through 8, here in lovely Luddington, Michigan, right next to Lake Michigan, yep. walking distance there Luddington to the state park. Beautiful area, and uh, I'm here preaching a, a three-night parish mission that ends tonight on Tuesday night, so a shout-out to all the, the school staff and the parish staff, and of course to the pastor who invited in the Fathers of Mercy, Father Wayne Wheeler, who's invited us in before, and uh, it's been a joy to be here this week with this wonderful Ludington, Michigan uh, uh, area and, and, and people, and uh, I'm here at the school. We had some trouble hooking up yesterday in the, in the parish offices, so they said, well, use the school, so sure enough, it, it hooked up just fine. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. When I was in high school in Michigan, the uh, uh, Ludington had a a legendary tennis program, and they hosted a a big tournament there every year, and uh, everybody was mm. anxious to go there because it's right on the water, and why wouldn't you want to be there, right? Right, right. Well, it's been cool here this week. It's been in the in the fifties and low sixties, so yeah. uh, not quite summer here yet, but uh, but it's still a very very beautiful area. So, um, without commentary, I am going to introduce our springboard topic today of the Feast of the Ascension. Go. That's right. It's coming up uh, either on Thursday itself, the literal 40th day after uh, Easter in some of our dioceses here in the United States, and some of them, most of them, transferring it to the Sunday in place of the seventh Sunday of Easter. Uh, but this Solemnity of the Ascension, Jack, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ is really doctrinally about so many wonderful things. First, uh, in the Ascension, we find the completion of our Lord's earthly mission, right, which tradition holds was for some 33 years, and likewise, his three years of public ministry, according to sacred tradition, so beautifully recalled in the luminous mysteries of the rosary. Uh, this is why John Paul II instituted the luminous, because they 
focus per se on our Lord's three years of public life. Secondly, with Jesus' ascension into heaven, the Paschal mystery is completed, that four-event event of our Lord's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, by which he redeems and saves us. And this after his 40 days of appearing in what are called his post-resurrection accounts and appearances. And so our redemption is accomplished in that four-event event of the Paschal Mystery. Thirdly, with this great Feast of the Ascension, we have Christ ascending to be seated definitively at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He will not be seen again in his human nature's stature and form until his second coming at the end of time. But I want to focus especially on today for our springboard in regards to the Ascension, Jack, is this important point. The fact that through our Lord's ascension into heaven, In his human nature, per se, our Lord opens up our own path in our own human nature to enter into the heavenly sanctuary. How awesome is that? Eternal beatitude, the beatific vision, heaven for all eternity, for that human person in his or her human nature. Pope St. Leo the Great, the great Pope, says this, The ascension is not only about our Lord's divinity ascending into heaven, but also about our humanity being admitted to seat itself at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's a powerful thought, powerful doctrine there. St. Augustine says, For although he ascended alone, we also ascend, because we are in him by grace. He is the head, and we are the members of his body. And one form of the general intercessions uh, for the Ascension Mass reads this, Jack, King of glory, Through your ascension, you took with you our frail humanity to be glorified in heaven. Keep that in mind. You took with you our frail humanity. Because when we come back from the break, I want to mention briefly how tragedy and sorrow, uh, ailments and sicknesses, etc., fit into this celebration of the ascension. So again, the general intercessions uh, from the ascension mass in one form say these words, King of glory, Through your ascension, you took with you our frail humanity to be glorified in heaven. Another part of the Mass, a special insert during the Roman canon, Eucharistic Prayer 1, makes special mention of our weak human nature, quote-unquote. Again, uh, giving a a glimmering there to the realities of of our frailty in, in human life here on earth. The Collect Prayer for the Ascension Mass says, For the ascension of Christ is our exaltation. The rest of humanity, for the ascension of Christ is also our exaltation. And preface of Easter uh, number two, titled New Life in Christ, I love this. I use it frequently throughout the 50-day Easter season. The preface says this, number two, Through him, Christ, the children of light rise to eternal life, and the halls of the heavenly kingdom are thrown open to the faithful. What an image. What an image that is, huh? The halls of the heavenly kingdom are thrown open open to the faithful for our own humanity to have access to the heavenly sanctuary. A main point here, we are indeed made for heaven, right? And the ascension reminds us of this beautiful truth, that our gaze is to be fixed on Christ's human nature and glory in heaven, even as we labor tirelessly for him now in this present age, while still living in this broken wounded world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even dawned on the human heart 
what Almighty God has prepared for those who love him. That's St. Paul's definition of heaven, we could say. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, But to what angel has God ever said, Sit at my right hand? Huh? Mm-hmm. That human nature of Christ seated at his right hand. And regarding the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension testifies, we could say also, Jack, that after Jesus, human nature henceforth knows no bounds. Human nature is enthroned at the right hand of the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Again, that second preface, Easter prayer, in the Roman Missal tells of this truth beautifully when it states, through him the children of light rise to eternal life, and again, the halls of the heavenly kingdom are thrown open to the faithful. So that's the one kernel, the one jewel, the one specific truth I want my listeners of Open Line Tuesday today to take with them. The ascension is also about our human nature entering definitively into heaven seated at the right hand of the Father via our Lord Jesus Christ, who took on our own human nature. For his death is our ransom from death, sacred scripture says, and in his rising, the life of all has risen. So just a a beautiful, beautiful feast. You know, even, even if you can get to a weekday mass on this Thursday, even though the ascension may have been transferred to this coming Sunday, Try to go to Mass for the Easter weekday on Thursday because it is the 40th day after Easter. And and it's it's, it's symbolic of the ascension that you'll celebrate this forthcoming Sunday in your diocese, if your diocese has indeed transferred it to the Sunday. Uh, A double whammy, if you will, for the celebration of the ascension. You know, numbers mean something. I've said before in the past, the significance of 40, new growth, new life, huh? Uh, new uh, task uh, fulfillment, uh, new new goal-bearing in your life. And we see this in the New Testament with the 40 days uh, after Easter of Jesus ascending into heaven. And remember his 40 days of, of being in the desert before he began his three years of public ministry. So 40 means something. So this coming Thursday, if you can, get to Mass whether it's the celebration of the Ascension or not in your diocese, and celebrate this beautiful, beautiful day. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. And if you are outside the United States and Canada, give us a call at one 201 2985. And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. We've got a new item for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's the book, The Truth About Clergy Sexual Abuse, Clarifying the Facts and the Causes, by our good friend, uh, 
uh, Mr. Bill Donahue, the president of the Catholic League. And in this book, Bill unpacks the history and root causes of the clergy sex abuse scandals in the United States. And he tells the story from a fresh angle while calling readers to rethink our assumptions about the church's handling of these horrific abuses. It challenges many myths about the scandals, demonstrating that the abuse of minors is indeed a problem that haunts virtually every institution, religious and secular, where adults interact with young people. The work also provides compelling evidence of the great progress that the Church has made in preventing abuse, and he investigates how the educational institutions of the Catholic Church, including the seminaries, have been affected by the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s and explores the effects of dissent from Catholic sexual morality. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more, standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. A uh, new book by Bill Donahue, available for you at EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. And, Father, you said there was something you wanted to touch on uh, after the break. Is that still yeah. the case? Yes, in regards to our broken, wounded world resulting to the fall of our first parents, which ushered in the original sin, you know, what, what about such things as illnesses, tragedies, uh, accidents, uh, slow demise of health into death, uh, or sudden death that comes without any warning, uh, sufferings in general huh, of any kind? These, too, are, are part and parcel with, with the broken, wounded world in which we live, huh? Uh, and, and how do such things fit into the reality of the ascension of our Lord? That is, into the doctrine of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the exaltedness that human nature is called to, to one day definitively be in heaven? Well, Pope St. Leo gives us a great quote in regards to this reality of suffering and the reality of the ascension and how the two fit in. And it has to do with the suffering that the apostles themselves experienced in seeing Christ crucified on the cross. Listen to this. Pope St. Louis the Great says, throughout the whole period between the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord, in other words, that 40 days of post-resurrection accounts, God's providence was at work to instill this one lesson into the hearts of the apostles and disciples, to set this one truth before their very eyes, and it is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ, who was truly born, truly suffered, and truly died, should be recognized as truly risen from the dead. But the blessed apostles, together with all the others, had been intimidated by the absolute catastrophe of the cross. And so their faith in the resurrection had been uncertain at first. But now, because of these 40 days of post-resurrection appearances before the ascension, indeed leading up to the ascension, now they were so strengthened by the evident truth that when their Lord ascended into heaven, that far from feeling any sadness whatsoever, they were filled with great and complete joy. They had, in other words, they had witnessed the absolute catastrophe of the cross, Pope St. Leo the Great says. But because of these post-resurrection accounts, they had absolute certainty of the resurrection. So when they saw our Lord ascend into heaven, as Matthew gives us the account of, when Jesus says in his parting words at the ascension, Behold, I am with you always, even until the consummation of the ages. 
far from being sad that he was leaving after these 40 days of appearing to them, they exulted in joy because it solidified everything that Jesus had taught them, and they also saw the glory of their own human nature in their own woundedness, their own tragedies, as our Lord himself had experienced in his own human nature. And I think that's a powerful point, that when we're suffering tragedies, setbacks, trials, tribulations, persecutions, illnesses, uh, whatever, we look to this great doctrine of the ascension and how the apostles saw it of what awaits them in their own human nature. To the phones we go. Richard is a first-time caller in Wabash, Indiana, listening on the EWTN app. Richard, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you. Father, uh, first of all, I appreciate and enjoyed the book that you'd written on the four things after death. Um, Okay, thank you. You're welcome. My question is, I am now reading a book titled Purgatory, and it describes purgatory as being located next to hell, and the pain and suffering that we have to experience to pay for our sins before we can go into heaven. I just got, it's really hard to understand, and I wanted to see what your comment is on that. Well, when it comes to purgatory, a great place to start on the doctrine of purgatory is the universal catechism, because it, it comes right after the section on the reality of sin. In fact, it's coupled with the reality of the sacrament of reconciliation, which simultaneously talks about God's mercy. Okay, and so to understand purgatory, we have to understand that only absolute purity can enter into heaven. Only absolute perfected human nature can enter into heaven. And so if we die in a state of grace, but not yet purified of attachments to sin, both mortal and venial sin, that attachment needs to be purgated before one can enter heaven. No one enters heaven with inordinate attachments, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches. It would be absolutely impossible for one to enter heaven with attachment to sin, with inordinate attachments to persons, places, or things. If they entered heaven with inordinate, that is, out of ordered, disordered attachments to persons, places, and things, once they got into heaven and saw those things weren't there, they would be disgruntled with heaven. They would be unhappy with heaven. Well, that could never happen, because as St. Paul just taught us in 1 Corinthians in uh, the springboard topic, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it even dawned on the human heart or the human mind what God has prepared for those who love him, right? So this is why in this life we want to have a proper detachment to persons, places, and things, so that we can die in a state of grace, which simply means with no known mortal sin on your soul, okay, but also doubly not attached to things in an inordinate way, okay? God's plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. I preach this constantly because it's very possible to go straight to heaven when we die. His plan B for you, if you want to call it that, and you can call it that, his plan B for you, if you want to call it that, is to go to heaven through a prior purgation first in purgatory, because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. That's why I say it could be God's plan B for us. But his plan A for us is to experience this earthly life while still living, this average of 78 years, in a state of sanctifying grace, on a continuum, 
with no inordinate attachments to persons, places, or things. That's his goal for us, is to die in that kind of a state. No mortal sin and no inordinate attachments. But that's not the reality of things. And so there has to be a place of purgation, because um, only absolute detachment virtuously can enter into heaven. Now, what is purgatory like? Well, we know what we know through the scripture passages about purgatory, uh, a, a pass, like passing through a place, of, a place of fire is being tried as though through fire, for example. Uh, we know it's a pious practice to pray for the dead, so we know that the dead can still benefit from our prayers if they're in purgation, not if they're damned souls by their own doing. They don't benefit from our prayers, but the members of the church suffering uh, benefit from our prayers, also known as members of the church penitent. This also ties into the three-tiered hierarchy of the doctrine of the communion of saints, the members of the church triumphant in heaven, the members of the church militant still fighting the good fight on earth, and the members of the church suffering in purgatory who again are assured heaven. Uh, I like to remind my listeners that, that we hear the members of the church suffering a lot, but remember a second phrase, as I just said, is members of the church penitent, because purgatory is a place of purgation. It is a penitential place. So, you know, when I make my morning offering in the morning, I pray for the grace to die in a state of grace. I pray for the grace to die in a state of grace with no known mortal sin in my soul, to be detached from sin, thereby receiving the greatest of all graces to enter heaven immediately upon my death. That's in my morning offering. Uh, if, you, if you go to fathersofmercy.com and on the search bar at the homepage, after clicking on the magnifying glass icon at the top right, on the search bar that comes up right away at the homepage, type in the words morning offering, and you can print out the morning offering I pray daily uh, for the great grace to enter heaven immediately. Uh, you know, purgatory, Mother Angelica always called purgatory an element a strong element of God's doctrine of mercy towards his creatures, his human creatures, that he made in his image and likeness. She used to call purgatory the vestibule of heaven. How beautiful is that? You know, you enter a Catholic church, right, and there's always the vestibule first. Well, purgatory is like the vestibule of, of heaven, or, or the, the, the prior chamber, the before chamber, the antechamber, A-N-T-E, not A-N-T-I, but the antechamber of heaven, the before chamber of heaven. It's the vestibule of heaven, and that's a beautiful thought. So uh, as far as what the purgation is like, the church is silent on that in regards to its particulars. She teaches only doctrinally that there is a purification from attachment to sin. That she definitely teaches, but, but it remains a mystery uh, that we don't know exactly how that purgation is carried out, per se. Uh, but but it, there is definitely a purgation, and we know definitely doctrinally that that's the purpose of the purgation, is to purify one before entering heaven, because that's the, the only way one can enter heaven, is through absolute uh, non-detachment, uh, or without inordinate attachment to persons, places, and things. And one final note, how does St. Thomas Aquinas define detachment? He defi First of all, he identifies it as a virtue. He says, detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's a pretty balanced, pretty awesome definition of detachment as a virtue. Detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. So, do you love 
sports the way God intends you to love sports? Or do sports become your demigod, especially on a Sunday, and they usurp your Sunday Mass obligation? Do you love the Internet the way God intends you to love the Internet? It's a beautiful invention, right? Uh, Those of us in communications on television and radio with EWTN couldn't survive without the Internet. We couldn't survive our apostolate work in Catholic radio or Catholic television. So the Internet's a beautiful thing. Um, Your spouse, do you love your spouse the way God intends you to love your spouse? Or do you use and abuse your spouse? Um, These are things we want to ask ourselves. So persons, places, and things. Detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. And please note, by the way, that um, his very definition of detachment, St. Thomas Aquinas, doesn't negate love. In fact, he includes the gerundive of love, loving. He, He includes the gerundive of love in his very definition. Detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. This now dovetails back to what St. Paul tells us about the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Great question. Thank you so much, uh, Richard, for your call today from Wabash, Indiana. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. You know, Father, you mentioned Father Wayne Wheeler, who's hosting you there at St. Simon's in Ludington. And, um, you know, Father Wayne was one of the early people that said yes to Catholic Radio and he actually operates a low-power FM station there in Ludington, WLCV. So double kudos to uh, Father Wayne. Not quite Father Wade, but close. Father Wayne and Father Wade teaming and, up and this not, week. Not only that, that's right, Jack. You're absolutely correct. And not only that, but guess where it broadcasts from, where the equipment is set up? In the back sacristy of the church. How awesome <laughs> is that? <laughs> you know? well, there you so, go. So. Uh, it's a very... It, it, the church was built in 69, so it's got a very, very large vestry behind the, the altar and a very large, excuse me, a very large sacristy behind the altar and a very large vestry uh, on the opposite side of the church it, by the back aisle, main, main aisle. And so he's got it set up in a room back there uh, in, in the sacristy. So it's a great setup. And a shout out to uh, Bob Moldering, who's the general manager of Holy Family Radio there in Western Michigan, covering Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids, uh, for bringing that to my attention. So thanks, Father Wayne, for your yes those many years ago. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next stop is the Republic of Texas. Craig is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Craig, you're on with Father Wade. Thanks, Father. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank Hello? you so much for your call. We appreciate it. Good. Thank you, sir. My question is basically like the first question, but I didn't quite understand part B. And my question was, do you have to be a saint to get into heaven? Okay, great question. So you have to be, a, first of all, let's, let's word it this way. Everybody in heaven... Every soul in heaven that's awaiting the reunification with their body at the second coming of Christ, every soul in heaven is a saint. Everybody in heaven is a saint. Not everybody in heaven is a canonized saint. We know historically as a fact that over the course of the 2,000-year history of the Church, 
we have about eight to 10,000 formally canonized saints. Why, do, why is there a 2,000 number discrepancy there? Because the earliest canonizations were done by proclamation of the people, still subject to the church's approval toward those proclamations by the people, but still initiated by proclamation of the people. So those were the earliest, earliest canonizations. Why, the, why that way back then? Because there was no formal canonization process set up yet. But once the church set up, over the centuries, her formal, uh, her formal process of canonization, we know for a fact today, at the dawn of this third millennium, we have eight to 10,000 canonized saints. So everybody in heaven is a saint, but not everybody in heaven is a canonized saint. Do only saints to heaven? Well, yes, insofar as only the absolute purified, with no attachment, no inordinate attachment to sin, can enter heaven, as we answered in the previous caller's question. Uh, Richard, I believe, from Indiana. So great, great uh, cap-off question. Uh, do, you, do only saints enter heaven? Well, insofar as you're absolutely purified to be able to enter in heaven, yes. And then once in heaven, everybody's a saint, but not everybody in heaven is a formally canonized saint. We have about eight to 10,000 canonized saints. Uh, next up is Maureen in Augusta, Georgia. She's listening on St. Paul Radio today. Maureen, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Father Wade, it's so good to talk to you. I'm a first-time caller. I went to Catholic University. Well, thank you, Maureen. I graduated in 1981 and had a great um, education. I was able to spend 30 minutes with Pope John Paul II. So um, I'm coming from a, a different oh, perspective. Great. And... Uh, you were talking about the 40 days after the crucifixion and how it strengthened the uh, faith of the apostles, which is kind of paradoxical in the sense that while they were with Christ, up until the day that he was crucified, they denied him. And so what I have learned in my 63 years of life is uh, recently, through the loss of my husband and some other tragedies, is, of course, that Christ is always with us, but that... Um, when you look at what the what Christ was afraid of in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, his friends had abandoned him. He was bleeding blood from his pores, and he said to, to his father, "You know, my God, if you can take this cup, go ahead and do it." I mean, he was afraid not of the uh, nails in his hands and his feet, but he was afraid of being abandoned. And then the next day, the last thing he says is, "My God, my God, why have you abandoned me?" And I think that what happened is. Mm. The, uh, the apostles recognize that um, they do, do not have him physically with them, but they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit that allowed them to recognize his presence. And I think that, you know, abandonment is the reason that a lot of sin is committed and a lot of people are lost, because they feel that they're not going to get the protection of our Father in Heaven. And when Christ died on the cross like that, and they saw Him, they saw Him struggle to the last minute with the same fears that they had, that they, you know, before the cock crowed and all that that we have always learned. They struggled with that feeling that God was going to abandon them. And Christ um, showed them that I will always be with you. And it was a problem that I had in my life I didn't understand it. I, of course, understood God the Father, because I had a great Father. I understood the love between the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit. But I never could really believe that Christ suffered, because kind of like bewitched, he could shake his nose and all the pain would go away. But the pain that he was 
uh, mm. feeling was not was not the nails or the, the sword in his side. It was afraid that he was going to be if he was going to be abandoned. And I think the the apostles recognized when he did um, come to them in those forty days that he's never going to leave us. And that he is the Son of God. I, I believe you're absolutely correct. I, I believe you're absolutely correct. And, and that was his impetus for having those 40 days of post-resurrection accounts, which towards the end of those 40 days, he's emphatic that he will now send the paraclete, the advocate, which means lawyer. <laughs> I will send you the paraclete. I will send you the advocate who will advocate for you and remind you not only of what I have taught you already, but he will also inform you of everything I have not taught that is in alignment with my teaching, okay? Uh, and when I he- read that, which was this past Sunday, and in, in part that, that gospel from this past Sunday for the sixth uh, Sunday of Easter, uh, year C, um, I, I think of abortion, euthanasia, which by name, abortion and euthanasia, are not in sacred scripture, uh, they're in the Didache, the first century document of the Didache, uh, the, the apostolic writing compilation known as the Didache. For example, you shall not kill the unborn by taking certain herbs. Okay, that's, that's a clear reference to abortion. But as far as sacred scripture itself, so we have the magisterium of the church to guide us through sacred scripture itself, per se, sacred tradition, and the magisterial teaching of the church, the teaching office of the church, which itself, the magisterium, uh, is rooted or grounded in the apostolic college to guide us. Th- this is the three-legged stool that guides us to know that Christ is with us until the end of time. But there's something prior to all of this I want to say, Maureen, and it's this. When they're feeling the abandonment, uh, to the point that they even abandon him on the night of the arrest, um, and, and then and then they're right at first, like Thomas, Thomas still doubted, even though the others had told him that they had seen him in the upper room, that he appeared in the upper room. This is after the resurrection. This was the beginning of the 40 days of post-resurrection account appearances, right? Thomas even still doubted. So in that sense, Thomas is still abandoning our Lord. But our Lord takes care of that when he appears a second time in the upper room and says, Thomas, come here. Come here now. Put your finger in my side and see that I am here among you, and and doubt no more but believe. But regardless, all that abandonment, all that doubt, really, really boils down to a lack of faith. And what does the Church teach about the theological virtue of faith? Faith is both a gift from God and a human act. In other words, it's given to the person by God, it's a gift, and it's a human act by which the person assents back to God the doctrine of the faith that has been revealed to him, which the person, the human person, is either free to accept or reject through his intellect and will. The intellect to know and the will to choose. Okay, So the Catechism is very clear. The theological virtue of faith is both a human act of God toward the person of the revealed truth in question— and a response on the person's part back to God, so faith is reciprocal, right? On the person's part back to God, wherein the person assents to the truth that has been revealed to him. Revealed how? Well, through sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, okay? That's how we can literally, not metaphorically, but literally know, quote-unquote, literally know the truth. And this is why now, 2,000 years after our Lord's resurrection, 
We have a moral duty and responsibility. Our baptism, our confirmation, sustained by regular Eucharist, sustained by regular monthly confession. I I promote monthly confession. I believe the culture is too strong today to not go to confession at least 12 times a year, once a month. Our baptism and our confirmation, sustained by regular Eucharist, of course for Sunday obligation, and monthly confession, whether we're in holy orders, whether we're in matrimony, whether we're single, uh, we have a duty to pursue and seek out the truth. Because truth is a person, a divine person, as Pope Francis recently said in a Wednesday audience. Truth is a person, a divine person. And he has a bride, a church that he established that we know by her four marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, that we know her revealed truth given by her bridegroom to her, guided by the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, the lawyer, okay, the third person of the Trinity, to guide us, to be our advocate, to defend us, and to lead us in the truth, to stand up strengthened in the truth. And so this, this is why, you know, our baptism and confirmation especially call us to be good students of the faith. Once a Catholic, always a good student of the faith, and we have a, it's incumbent upon us to pursue the truth. God's given us an intellect and a will to do so. Uh, Dr. Anders made a very strong reference to this truth, and what does it mean to be saved from the Catholic point of view versus the Protestant point of view? Well, he used the example of, of being saved, quote-unquote, at a Billy Graham crusade back in 1973. And once that's happened to you, you can carte blanche live your life how you want to live it because you went to a crusade back in 73 and that's it? It's done? It's done? No. Uh-uh. Conversion is a lifelong process. And we're called to stay in a state of sanctifying grace with no known mortal sin on our soul. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. Those are the three elements that make a mortal sin present. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If any one or two of those elements are missing, you have a venial sin. But even we're, we're, we're even called to shun venial sin. Okay, So God has given us all the helps. He's given us actually tangible helps to aid us on the road to salvation with his sanctifying grace. What are those the, What are those tangible helps? The seven sacraments. That's what they are. The, the, the stuff that the sacraments use, the water, the oil, the bread, the wine, the exchange of words, like the audible exchange of words that, that a man and wife exchange at their wedding ceremony, the laying on of hands by the bishop on the ordinandi's head at his ordination. Tangible reality, tangible helps the church gives us that we can have the moral certitude that we're in a state of sanctifying grace through these helps. Okay, that, that's what's important. So without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. St. Catherine of Siena. And St. Augustine, quoted in number 1847 of the Catechism, uh, the God who willed to create you without your cooperation does not will to save you without your cooperation. And remember, too, these tangible helps known as the sacraments. Uh, there's seven sacraments, but three categories, right? Uh, the three sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist. Two sacraments of healing for the body-soul compositeness of the human person. We don't have bodies, we are bodies. We don't have souls, we are souls. What are the two sacraments of healing? The anointing of the sick and confession. And then the two sacraments of union, which are at the service of communion to the populaces of the entire world. What are they? Matrimony and holy orders. 
Seven sacraments, three categories. And mind you, and this is very beautiful, I said this two weeks ago on, on Open Line because it fit into one of the questions that our callers, one of our callers had that day. Look at the seven sacraments now and how they plug into the entire 78 years of the average length of human life for those of us living in the West. Those are the latest longevity statistics around 78 years. Baptism equals infancy. Eucharist, meaning First Holy Communion, age seven, the age of reason. Childhood, not infancy, but childhood. Confirmation, young adult. Most of the times in the U.S., given between 8th grade and 10th grade, but some bishops are doing it earlier now because they believe the young people need the sacrament of confirmation by the time they enter middle school. And I think that's a good point to be made today with today's culture. And so some bishops now are giving confirmation as early as 4th as, uh, grade, 5th grade. And our Eastern Catholic Rite brothers and sisters in union with Rome, but at baptism, at infancy, they give confirmation, what they call chrismation. Okay, but regardless, I'm talking about the Latin right now. Baptism is infancy. First Eucharist, childhood. Confirmation, young adulthood. How about matrimony or holy orders? Adulthood, choice of state in life and chosen vocation, right? And then anointing of the sick, end of life issues regardless of how old you are when you die. So we see the seven sacraments, I said two weeks ago, and I'll say it again, we see the seven sacraments plugged into the different phases of this 78-year average of the human person. How beautiful is that? That the seven sacraments plug into the different phases of our life throughout this average of 78 years. Infancy, childhood, young adulthood, adulthood, and end-of-life issues. And yet I've met Catholics, fallen away Catholics, for example, in airports, where I try to talk to them and hopefully they'll make a confession before they get on their plane because they reveal to me on their own that they've been separated from the church now for over 20 years. Nope, too stubborn. Don't want to do it. Think of the graces they are denying themselves by staying away from these tangible helps that our Lord instituted himself for his bride, the church, to carry out until the end of the ages when he comes again. And there are fallen away Catholic Christians denying themselves the sacraments. It's a tragedy, and the devil loves it. So, yeah, you make a great point about abandonment, you know. Uh, a lot of it dovetails back around to s simply the loss of faith. Thank you, Maureen, for a great call today and a, and a great, not so much a great question, but a great statement that you made. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A brand new book from EWTN Publishing, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration by Dr. Ray Garendi. And boy, can we use that in our culture. This book, you will, uh, you'll need Amen. to master your anger so your anger won't master you. Dr. Ray unpacks many types of anger and the types of people who suffer most from anger. You can learn all about it by reading Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration by our good friend Dr. Ray Garendi. It's available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Pat is in Friendswood, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Pat, you're on with Father Wade. Okay, thank you. Um, I would, would like to better understand some of the scriptures that talk about John being the disciple that Jesus loved. Why is that singled out? Just very curious. Thank you. Great. Great question. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, many of the Church Fathers uh, answer that very question by saying that it was John who perfectly lived, perfectly encapsulated in his young age, the virtues, the virtuous life, and the virtuous way of living. And Jesus recognized that in him. 
And this is why he was the disciple that, quote, Jesus loved, because he was already living his life so perfectly. We can imagine John having, for example, the passions in perfect balance, joy, anger. Jack just gave a, a promo for Dr. Ray Garindi's book on anger. You know, anger can be just, it can be unjust, right? Uh, and, and just anger is good. Sometimes it's absolutely called for, but it never goes beyond the parameters that it's meant to be expressed in. This is called a, a, a balanced way of living the virtues. You know, we have the seven capital sins, right? But we also have the seven capital virtues. We also have the opposite extremes of the seven capital sins that can be just as detrimental to the person's life as the capital sin is. So, for example, you have pride, right? Pride is one of the seven capital sins. In fact, it's often listed as the capital of the capital sins, because the other six capital sins somehow, some way, stem from pride, right? Um, and so uh, you have pride, but the opposite extreme of pride is what? It's self-loathing. Well, self-loathing is bad, too. It can be just as bad as pride is in a person's life, even though it's the opposite of pride. So what's the median virtue between the two? Humility. Seeing your place and taking it is how St. Thomas Aquinas defined humility. In other words, the person who suffers from pride has to practice humility, but the person who, practice, who suffers from uh, self-loathing also has to practice humility. All right, that's the interesting thing, that even though they're polar opposites of one another, pride and self-loathing, both persons who suffer from both extremes have to practice the same virtue, because humility is seeing your place and taking it. The pride prideful person is sometimes going to be called lower. The self-loathing person is sometimes going to be called higher, and they have to take their place, and, and they have to see their place, and they have to take it. How about workaholism? Uh, opposite extreme of sloth. Sloth is often seen as one of the seven capital sins. It's often given as one of the seven capital sins. The opposite extreme of sloth is the workaholic. Both are bad, right? What median virtue do those two individuals that suffer from sloth and workaholism have to practice diligence. They have to practice the virtue of diligence. Do what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, in the way it's supposed to be done, right? They need to practice the virtue of diligence. So picture John the Apostle living those median virtues, all seven of them, between the two opposite extremes, uh, right, of the seven capital sins and their opposite uh, opposite extremes to the to the seven capital sins. Keep that in mind. So, uh, how about how about lust? Lust is often depicted as one of the capital sins, and rightly so. Opposite extreme of lust: prudishness. Right? Prudishness, seeing all things to do with human sexuality is evil, and that's just not the case. Right? We we uh, we see human sexuality as Catholic Christians as a, as a beautiful gift, as a, as a, as a great beautiful gift. So we have to practice the virtue of chastity. Chastity is the median virtue found halfway between lust and prudishness. So uh, you have to see that John probably lived very beautifully a balanced life of the passions, of the median virtues between the seven capital sins and their opposite extremes. And Jesus saw this in him as natural virtue, and Jesus was enamored by that. Jesus wanted everybody to have that. And this is why he constantly taught us uh, the importance of virtue and virtuous living. So great question uh, about, about John, the so-called, quote, apostle that Jesus loved. 
Uh, next up is Lois, a first-time caller in the great state of New York, listening on Pox at Bonham Radio. Lois, just a couple minutes left with Father Wade. What's your question today? Hi. I had called about <clears throat> people practicing sexual abuse on children, um, pedophiles, rapists, etc., and I, I can't love them. I know we're supposed to love everyone, but the children are injured for the rest of their lives. How do I deal with this? Yeah. Yeah, it's an abominable, abominable crime in regards to the church's teaching, as the church labels it, and rightly so, because they're the defenseless ones, right? Uh, are you aware of the life of St. Maria Goretti, attacked at age 11 by 20-year-old self-admitted lust addict Alessandro Serenelli? Uh, no, it was I'm his not. third attempt at raping her. Okay, it's, it was his third attempt at raping her in her mother's kitchen. And she refused him, of course, all three times. And the third time, he actually stabbed her 14 times. And we know from his court testimony, his court public de depositions, she kept repeating to him over and over during the attack, no, Alessandro, no. It is a mortal sin. It is a mortal sin. You will go to hell. So much did little 11-year-old Maria, just four years beyond the age of reason, age seven, so much did Maria understand the absolute horrificness of sin, especially the heinous reality of mortal sin, that she was more concerned during the attack that Alessandro not commit one than she was even about preserving her own life. That's not natural. That can only be described as supernatural, right? That an 11-year-old is more concerned that her attacker not commit a mortal sin than she even is concerned about preserving her own life. Well, he had a profound conversion. And before she died, 24 hours later, she told her mother, Mama, Mama, pray for Alessandro that he be converted and that I may one day see him in heaven. And she died an hour later. She died about 24 hours right after the attack. And she told her mother those words in the 23rd hour after her attack. She died in the hospital the next day with her mother, Asanta Goretti, uh, seated at her bedside. 29 years later, Alessandro gets out of prison. The first thing he does is he goes and knocks on Asanta Goretti's door, Maria's mother, and begs for forgiveness. And Asanta's words to him, Alessandro, get up from your knees. My son, how can I not forgive you when Maria herself did? And she welcomed him into the house for a meal. A few months later, murderer and mother attended midnight mass together and received Holy Communion side by side at the communion rail where Maria's body lay buried just 12 feet away in the church wall. That was the church where she was buried. Conversion is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Little Maria Goretti even did it immediately after her attacker attacked her. Those are our models, the great lives of the saints. Great question. Thank you so much. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our open line. This day and of terror of demons. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams, back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>